You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Over there, over there, send the word, send the word over there. That the Yanks are coming, the Yanks are coming, the drums rum coming everywhere. So prepare, say a prayer, send the word, send the word to beware. We'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 133. This is our second episode on the path of America entering the war. In last episode, we discussed some of the actions of the American government before 1917, and then discussed the Zimmerman telegram in depth. Today, we will take our story from that point. Our two big topics for today will be how the United States went from neutrality in February 1917 to declaring war on April 6th. We will then discuss the state of the country when war was declared. Before we even begin this discussion, I want to point out that the America of 1917 and the America of today are extremely different things. The 2017 version of the United States military is the most powerful in the world, and that power can be projected anywhere around the globe. That was absolutely not the case in the United States of 1917. The army barely existed. This meant that going to war was not as simple as sending an army overseas. They had to create an army in the first place. This is what makes the story of 1917 from April to the end of the year so interesting, at least to me. In early February 1917, the United States government had two new factors in its decision-making process, the Zimmerman Telegram and unrestricted submarine warfare. At the head of the government was President Wilson, and he seems to have not known precisely what he was going to do about these two new events, and this went on for several days, until February 3rd, when it was decided to break off diplomatic relations with Germany. This decision was announced in a speech before Congress, where it got loud applause. Then on February 13th, the House of Representatives passed the largest naval appropriations bill in American history, and it would pass by a factor of 15 votes for every one against. This bill was important, given how critical the Navy would be for any American war effort. Another issue for the United States, and something that the naval bill would help with as well in the future, was the fact that ships were already clogging the eastern coast seaports, refusing to go to sea due to the U-boat threat. On the eastern seaboard, warehouses and docks were packed full of goods that would have been on their way to Europe except for the fact that they were waiting on ships to take them. This slow build of tension would continue until April, and the United States Navy would help to ease U-boat fears for these ships during that month. 
even before the end of February, it appeared that the president had made up his mind for war. He would write about it privately, but he would wait for the American public opinion to coalesce around the idea before moving forward. Speaking of public opinion, I touched on it last time, but let's talk about it some more. Those who listened to the special episode I released of the recording of a speech I gave at a local Memorial Day event might remember that I talked a bit about public opinion and how mixed it was. Essentially, everywhere outside the Northeast had very little support for war, especially among Irish, German, and Jewish immigrants. Even those who were not actively against American intervention saw very little reason for the country to get involved with the war. In their minds, whatever benefits for American intervention were already being experienced. The economy was doing great due to British money flowing in for orders of all kinds of goods. These viewpoints were not well covered at the time due to two reasons. The first was that many people just did not care that much. This meant that nobody was talking about them or with them on the topic of the war. The second was that even for the people who actively did not want to join the war, their viewpoints were suppressed both by those inside the government and the newspapers. At this point in history, newspapers held a lot of sway over public opinion because they were one of the very few ways for ideas to be shared. Many within the government therefore discouraged newspapers from sharing isolationist viewpoints, a practice that would grow after the declaration of war. Wilson still held the ability to choose whether or not to enter the war, and with public opinion mixed, there was little chance he would be swayed by to swayed to action by a public outcry. He had, however, painted himself into a corner with the U-boat crisis. In his response to the German U-boat campaign, he had painted it as a crime against humanity perpetuated by the Germans. This left him no wiggle room when it came to how to respond to further attacks. There was also the issue of Wilson wanting to be the one to lead the world to peace, and for an explanation of how this affected things, we once again turn to G.J. Meyer from The World Remade. Quote, The most satisfactory answer is that his efforts to end the war through mediation, having been rejected by both sides, he feared that the United States and he as president would be left with no major part to play in the post-war settlement. The only way to change that was to earn a seat at the negotiating table, and by March 1917, the only way to do that was to enter the war. If the United States not only went to war but became a nation that broke the stalemate that made victory possible, Wilson might well find himself at the head of the table. It was not an ideal solution, but from his perspective, it was infinitely preferable to being excluded. It would impose on him the responsibility, in no way unwelcome, to stop the Allies from imposing a kind of peace that could never be made more, uns- more than unstable and short-lived. This was a quintessentially Wilsonian aspiration, at once noble and egotistical. It accorded perfectly with his sense of his own great destiny. End quote. Of course, while that would be might be why Wilson wanted to enter the war, it wouldn't actually work out for him, which is a topic for way later episodes. Whatever the precise reasoning or thought process for Wilson, the end result would be a speech before Congress on April 2nd. He summoned Congress on that day to hear, quote, a communication concerning grave matters of national policy, end quote. When he arrived at 835, many stood and cheered with no doubt in their mind about what was about to be said. During his speech, he called upon Congress to approve a declaration of war. He would use a phrase that would shape the next century of American foreign policy, that America had to enter the war because, quote, the world must be made safe for democracy, end quote. He would then say that, quote, the day has come when America is privileged to spend their blood and her might for the principles that gave her birth. God helping her, she can do no other, end quote. 
These are phrases that would be remembered from this speech, but there are some other areas of his speech that are often forgotten, and I for one find a fair bit more troubling. Part of this was because of what would happen during the next year and a half of the war, and partly due to how they have affected our country in the last hundred. He would say, quote, The thing I shall count upon, the thing without which neither counsel nor action will avail, is the unity of America, an America united in feelings, in purpose, and in visions of duty, of opportunity, and of service. Beware that no faction or disloyal intrigue break the harmony or embarrass the spirit of our people. End quote. A precedent was about to be set that in times of war, free speech in America, instead of being a right, would be removed in the name of unity and national purpose. Wilson and Congress would soon make this concept not just an idea in a speech, but very real and a very established fact. Almost as soon as Wilson was done with his speech, the conversations about the possible declaration began in Congress. The first and most important piece of legislation to discuss was, of course, the actual declaration of war, and discussion on the bill was mostly academic since it was almost guaranteed passage, but that would just be the beginning. There were a pile of other bills in queue behind it, like the one from the Justice Department that would give the president far-reaching powers to censor the press, and gave control of the mail over to the government, or the plethora of funding and appropriation bills that would be necessary to pay for a war. On Tuesday, April 3rd, Congress formally reassembled and got to work. There would have been a real danger of a filibuster in the Senate. There were senators who might have attempted such an act. But just a month earlier, the Senate had introduced a new feature. This was cloture, or a procedure whereby three-fifths of the Senate could agree to stop debate on any measure at any time, effectively removing the power of a small group of senators to filibuster indefinitely. Therefore, since it was almost guaranteed to be instantly voted down, a filibuster was not attempted. Once debate on the measure began, there was a long series of speeches by senators. Some just wanted to be on the record as supporting its passage. Others were strongly urging against it. Senator Stone from my home state of Missouri would say that it would be, quote, the greatest blunder in history, end quote. One item of note is that the Zimmerman telegram played almost no role in these speeches, and the debate in Congress, at least on an official level, meant that it was almost forgotten. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast.
The speeches would go on for almost six hours. One speech of note against the declaration came from Senator Norris of Nebraska, who made the claim that all those who supported the war were only doing so because they were in the pocket of big money. All of these speeches were a pre-show, a precursor to the main event, and that was the speech of Senator La Follette from Wisconsin. He was the leader of the pro-isolationist movement members of the Senate, and his speech would go on for four hours. During the speech, he would go over every single reason that the president had given for going to war, and he would answer each of them at great length. He would try to use evidence and reason instead of emotion to answer the calls for war. In his speech, he would raise many very important points, many of which we have already discussed here on the podcast. Here are just a few excerpts. Quote, the failure to treat the belligerent nations of Europe alike, the failure to reject the unlawful war zones of both Germany and Great Britain, is wholly accountable for our present dilemma. We have helped to drive Germany into a corner, her back to the wall, with what weapons she can lay hand, her hands on to prevent the starving of her women and children, her old men and babies. End quote. When discussing the call to make the world safe for democracy, La Follette would have some questions to go along with that. Quote, the president was also wrong to call the war a conflict of democracy against autocracy. Was Great Britain a champion of democracy in Ireland, in Egypt, and in India? To what extent would Britain herself, with her king and house of lords and severely limited franchise, claim to be a democracy? End quote. When his speech ended, La Follette sat down, sat down reportedly with tears on his cheeks. When the speech ended progressive leader Amos Pico would tell a journalist, Gilson Gardner, quote, that is the greatest speech either of us will ever hear. It will not be answered because it is unanswerable, end quote. Over the next two hours, more speeches would follow, but instead of answering the questions and concerns of La Follette, they just tried to discredit him as being un-American and unpatriotic. These are easy accusations to make when someone speaks out against something that is seen as patriotic, and it would not be the last time that accusations of people being unpatriotic would be thrown around the United States during the war. The final speeches were over just before 11 p.m., and the voting began in the Senate. It would pass 82 to 6. In the House of Representatives, the debate would continue until 3 a.m. on the 6th of April, even though the result was a foregone conclusion. When the votes were counted, it would be 373 in favor and 50 against. While this seems like a landslide, for the next century, no other American military engagement would have as many dissenting voices in Congress as World War I. It would not be until 2002 and the war in Iraq that this streak would be broken. At midday on April 6th, the president would sign the resolution, and the United States was at war. While the debate and voting was happening in Congress, the executive branch had not been idle, and the president had signed a resolution, one that would be the tip of the iceberg of what was to come. In the executive order, the White House directed the United States Civil Services, which administered thousands of federal jobs, to remove any employee if there were grounds for believing that the employee should have any sympathies with the enemy, or if the employee spoke out about the war in any negative way. These removals could be done without any other formalities, and the official reason could be kept confidential. This order was both vague and incredibly powerful. Essentially, the administration of federal employees could remove anybody for almost anything that was said by them other than full-throated support of the war. And, and in reality, due to the confidentiality of the reason for dismissal, it could be for just about anything, as long as they claimed it was for patriotic reasons. 
With his resolution, the United States government had brought a sled and had just jumped aboard the slippery slope. With the United States' entry into the war, nobody on earth was probably happier than the British government. Over the course of the first three years of the war, the British grew almost entirely dependent on the United States to keep both their society and their war effort moving forward. A large percentage of the guns, metals, shells, explosives, oil, meat, grain, and cotton used by the British were all being imported from America. In November 1916, of the 5 million pounds the British were spending every single day on the war, a full 2 million pounds was going to the United States. By early 1917, the once seemingly limitless treasury of Britain was running dry. On April 2nd, the day of Wilson's speech, it was estimated that the British only had enough money for three more weeks of expenditures abroad. With the declaration of war, all of these issues went away. Soon after entering the war, Congress approved a $5 billion bond issue. This was just the first of many appropriations bills, and for the moment, Congress was eager to rubber stamp anything that was put in front of them when it came to paying for the war. In 1917, $5 billion was a staggering sum, and $3 billion of it would go directly to the British and the French, which resolved any money problems for the British for the duration of the war. With the Americans now in the war, there were some concerns among their allies that all of the best goods and services, which the Entente had been paying for before 1917, would be redirected to the American war effort. To try and head this off, there was an inter-allied council of war purchases and finance set up in Paris to try and coordinate and prioritize purchasing among the Allies. Then there was also the Allied Purchasing Commission, which sought to keep prices under control as demand grew. While this solved many problems, it also represented a seismic shift in world power. With the British now wholly dependent on the United States, the empire on which the sun never set would soon lose its position as the financial center of the world, and the focus of money power in the world shifted away from London and to New York City. The British and French wasted no time in sending both political and military liaisons to the United States so that the countries could start working together in their new wartime endeavor. Almost immediately they began unveiling how bad the situation was, and even if the Americans knew part of the story, they did not have any idea how many lies were contained in Entente propaganda. Instead of winning the war, the Entente were closer to losing it than ever before, and it was only through the Americans that they hoped to stave off defeat. Therefore, they begin for asking for massive amounts of American money, supplies, and troops. This last was very urgent, and they had a wonderful idea about how to expedite the process. Instead of Americans forming their own army, which would require so much administrative and logistical work, they can instead just give the British and French troops. Oh, they didn't have to worry about officers either. Just normal enlisted men is all that would be required. The British and French would then make sure that they were used properly. Just think about how many problems this solved for the Americans. Boy, those British and French were being so nice. The British only want, wanted like half a million men immediately. That's no big deal. From the American perspective, this was, of course, complete madness. The Americans would be sending their own army to Europe, led by Americans. But about that army... The best way to describe the American army in 1917 is anemic, especially on European standards. In a huge difference from today, in 1914, the American people had a general distrust for their military. This meant that representatives of those people often did their best to try and keep the army as small and underfunded as possible. 
This meant that there were laws around the fact that the general staff could not have more than 55 officers, and only 29 of them could be based in Washington, D.C. They also kept the army very small, with it having a grand total of 130,000 men in 1916, all of whom were spread around the country in a large number of smaller postings. All of this was done because many people were concerned about a large central government having a large, powerful, powerful army under its control. In June 1916, the National Defense Act went through Congress to increase the number of men to about 175,000 and to increase the National Guard to 450,000, again a, a pittance on the World War I scale, and even those numbers would be not, not be reached for five years. This increase was not actually related to the possibility of entering the war, but instead due to the Pancho Villa raid that we discussed last episode. When war was declared, it was decided that, the, that a division should be sent to Europe as soon as possible, both for propaganda reasons and to prepare the war for many more troops in the future. There was just one small little problem. The American army did not contain a division. This was due to the fact that no single concentration of troops in the country was large enough to require the creation of a division. So step one for the American army in World War I was to create a division, which as a person who grew up in a post-Cold War world is mind-boggling. So the number of men in the army would obviously not be sufficient for the war at hand. The Europeans understood the amount of work that would go into building the army and therefore kept their expectations quite low. The British believed that the Americans would have just 150,000 men in France by the beginning of 1918, and then just 500,000 by the end of the year. This is part of why they pushed so strongly to just have the men sent to them to be integrated into their own units, who would make the American contribution impactful sooner. The government and military of the United States were thinking more short-term, though, and they were faced with a problem. Everybody knew they needed more men, probably a lot more, probably 3 million to start with. How were they supposed to get that many men into the military? The only possible answer seemed to be conscription. Shortly after war was declared, Wilson announced that he wished to raise an army through conscription. But this was not easy to make happen. Uh, many recent immigrants to America associated conscription with their former homes, and they moved to the United States, and it was supposed to be different. They were supposed to be free. Even non-immigrants believed that if Americans began to use conscription, it would bring an end to what made the country so special in the first place. For this reason, it would take over a month for the bill to be introduced in Congress and then to be approved for the implementation of conscription, and even when it was, it would only pass the House of Representatives with 199 yes and 178 no votes, with 53 members abstaining. That is not exactly a ringing endorsement. In total, 24 million men would be registered for the draft, all males between the ages of 21 and 30, and they had to register by June 5, 1917 at their local post offices, which in many smaller towns was the only government building. More than 9.5 million men would register by this date, and the first draft lottery would be held on July 20th. When they registered, every man was given a number, between 1 and 10,500. Then once a specific number was called, everybody with that number was immediately drafted into the military. The first number to be drawn was 258, with many more to follow. In total, 687,000 draftees were ordered to report for duty on September 1st, but not everybody showed up. In total, 65,000 men would apply for non-combatant status during the war, most of them for religious exemptions, and most of these would be granted. 
A further 337,000 would refuse to report for duty when drafted over the course of the war. But many more did report for duty. And now the Americans were finally building up an army. And now it was time to train them and to decide what to do with them. Uh, But those are topics for next episode. Uh